Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, this time in beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. Last week when I had a chance to speak to Kara and our guest, I was in Cape Charles, Virginia on the Eastern Shore. I'll be back in sunny, not humid uh, Charlottesville, but more importantly, Kara, glad to be back with you. I'm I'm happy to have you back too. We had some connectivity issues, if I remember. You must have been somewhere really nice. If you didn't really have- nice, really <laughs> remote, and didn't work well for uh, Wi-Fi, but uh, you know hey, we made it work. So thanks for uh, making it happen. You get to unplug, which is pretty pretty amazing. So, and and how are things back in Charlottesville? You you're busy as ever. I think we still have some more Gerard Robinson. Uh, uh, product to, to discuss here late later in the show, but how's everything else going, Gerard? How many webinars well, have you hosted in the past month? Only five. Oh, well, there you go. Yep, yep. Uh, it's it's a it's a it's a slow month, and <laughs> the reality is there's so many more people better qualified than myself to pick Please from. So unless people are going to the deep bowels of the earth, they won't find my name. But uh, I don't, I don't have any for the remainder of the semester, but uh, November 11th, as of right now, I've got an event scheduled to talk about the presidential election and education. And I actually had to have uh, three different people say yes. One, if Biden wins, one, if Trump is reelected, because the answers could be different. But I'm not clear that I will actually know anything by November 11th. So. I yeah I think you're right. I was just going to say that, my friend. Like, what what makes you convinced? I mean, you might be talking about an entirely different topic there because, boy, as we roll toward this, and I have to say, I voted this weekend. I voted. Early voting started here in Massachusetts on Saturday. I, I okay. did it. I was happy to do it. So it's we're we're closing in. I, you're going to have a lot to talk about. I either way, maybe even the third way. I don't know. There's going to be. It's I, I want to tune into that. Well, so I'll be there. I've got to pivot to make it later in the month. Uh, yeah, because I, I think the date the summer, December first. <laughs> uh, no, I, actually, I can't use December first because I have another event December second. So if I can of maybe course, catch it in toward the end, but you know, but we'll see. We're we, we're living in interesting times, ladies and gentlemen. Gerard Robinson, always in demand. Moder- moderator of the year, I think, <laughs> decade. Anywho, well, yeah, we've got we've got a great guest coming up. But before that, we've got a couple of stories of the week. Um, I'm going to I'm going to start with mine, Gerard, because I wanted to open with a little. I don't know if I've told you this before, if I've told our listeners this before. Did you know that my first job in education policy was working for an assessment company? Did you know that? No. I did that. Yeah. So I'll, I'll never forget. So it was right. Um, I, cause you know, I have a master's degree in anthropology. Um, I did not know that, which, which has been super useful to my career. <laughs> not, not really, but I got to spend, a, I got to spend a nice couple of years at the university of Chicago doing it. So that was worth it. But, um, and I, after I graduated with that master's degree, I really needed a job. I had a lot of student loan debt from all of my degrees. And um, this is before I went on to do my doctorate in education. But I um, was offered a job. I don't even know if it's still called this. It was called Riverside Publishing Publishing Company. This was right after the passage of No Child Left Behind. So my job was to go around the country. I mean, I had maybe a few years of teaching experience under my belt, so I don't know how I landed it. But to go around the country and help states make standards. And then one of the other things I got to do was run bias and sensitivity committees. Fascinating stuff. And had I not had this job, I swear to you, I would not have, I would not be working in education policy 
in any capacity today. It was fascinating stuff. But this relates to my story of the week because one of the things that stands out to me so much about this experience are these conversations that we would have on these bias and sensitivity committees, which are which are groups of teachers that look at test items, that look at the results on test score items, and we try and figure out, did kids just not know the answer? Is this bias towards a certain group of kids? Is this, you know, or is there just something inherently wrong with this item? And that would determine like what questions got on the test. And one of the things, because I worked in English language arts, I was a former English teacher, that we would hear a lot is um, districts would get the results of their tests and they would say things like, well, you know, um, I remember one, I think it was LAUSD, so um, home to you, maybe, or close to home for you, um, saying, you know, we need to pivot our students, uh, we have so many um, students of, of Hispanic heritage in our in our school system, so many Spanish-speaking students in our school system. We can't have them read literature that doesn't resonate with them, like literature from other cultures, et cetera, et cetera. And I have to say, I always found this the most terrible argument because I thought maybe these kids would be really interested in stories from other cultures. It is this assumption, right, that somehow cognitively they couldn't engage if it wasn't reflective of them. And of course, kids want to read things that reflect what they know. But I think we all also want to read things that help us learn. Right? So it's something I carry with me. And today um, we're going to talk about, I've already talked a lot, but uh, quickly, this article from David Steiner and Mark Bauerlein. And um, mm-hmm. really, really good at... Um, <clears throat> provoking thought, we'll say. But this is about a new proposal for the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Okay. So the name, the nation's report card, we all look to it as the barometer, right? Of like what, what we know in this country, what kids do and do not know, whether or not state tests are up to snuff, et cetera. But the NAEP is proposing a new framework and that new framework, um, I'm going to, I'm going to quote here is calling for testing procedures that will optimize the performance of the widest possible population of students in the NAEP reading assessment. Okay. All right. Sounds good. We want optimal performance, right? Yep. But this means respecting the linguistic, cognitive, and epistemological strengths that individuals develop across their diverse communities of practice and bring to their reading. Yeah. Okay. I I can get down with that. That that Mm -hmm. doesn't sound bad, right? But what Steiner and Bauerlein are telling us here is that like this is diverting the conversation about how what students can do, how we teach, how people learn from the fact that it's not just about culture. It's also about the cultural capital, the core knowledge, the mm-hmm. skill, the information that kids are exposed to. And one of the things when it's used well, one of the things that we know that you know, that I know that assessments do so well is they expose not kids, not families. They expose systems for what they have failed to do for kids and for families. And so I'm going to quote one more time here. It says, our current mediocre results are a signal that English language arts teachers should focus instruction on the study of content rich texts. And if the NAEP reading exam doesn't tell us how we're doing in this critically important endeavor, it will fail to indicate whether young Americans can handle reading demands at the next level. So that's the part that stuck with me. I have a lot more thinking to do about this, Gerard, but like I said, as always, I think this article is going to, um, uh, uh, piss a lot of people off. Am I allowed to say that on the learning curve, but also (laughs) really great conversation. So thank you very much to professor David Steiner, David Steiner and Mark Barline. Are they saying content rich 
material versus culturally rich material? I think they're saying both. I think they're saying we can't get away from the fact that kids don't perform well in tests just because of where they come from. Or, you know, to my example about LAUSD, like what interests them or what resonates with them. It's that a lot of time what, what tests are showing us is that kids simply haven't been exposed to the building blocks that they need to learn and to be able to show us what they can do. And so they're saying, hey, this could be a cop out. And that's not what we need. Got it. Well, yeah, uh, Professor Steiner, former secretary, uh, well, I guess in New York, was commissioner of education, uh, really smart guy, is always keeping us on our toes. So uh, glad that him and the, and the co-author have published that. I will read that because I, I want to do a deeper dive. I am a proponent of assessments. Uh, I am not a great assessment taker. So I know what it's like Me to be on the other side of the fence. Uh, I understand the aspect of cultural relevance, uh, but I also understand that we think culture is solely driven by phenotype and what you look like. And all we have to do is to take a look at the group we call the miracle minority, the Asian students, and know that that is not the case because not all Asian students score well on exams. And that is a whole other story for a whole other conversation. But I look forward to reading that. Well, I think my story aligns with yours because it's talking about people who are in district administrative roles versus those who are in the classroom. So this is from Ira Stoll, who is a managing editor at Education Next. Title, Growth in Administrative Staff Assistant Principals Far Outpace Teacher Hiring. And this is from the U.S. Department of Labor. And they identified 271,020 K-12, quote unquote, education administrators who make on average more than $100,000 a year. And the point that Iris is making, I think it's pretty good. It's just two I'm just going to share. So number one, he said there were 2.9 million teachers in the fall of 2000, and there were 3.1 million teachers fall of 2017. So really a 7.7% increase. For principals and assistant principals, there was only a 34% increase. But he looked at the uh, information and said, wow, in the fall of 2000, there were 97,270 school district administrative staff. Well, fast forward 17 years, it's now over 170,000. That's a 75% increase, you know, double what you see for principals and tenfold what you see for teachers. And so the point he's making is that if we're going to take a look at student enrollment, which only increased from 47 million to 50 million during the same yeah. period of time. But we have a 75% increase in school district administrative staff. And we say we're not paying teachers enough, but we, yet we have you know, school administrators making over 100,000. We've got to figure out what that looks like. And then number two, if in fact we want to have the best bang for our buck, what's the relationship between more administrators and student outcomes? And when I read his piece, I also thought about an article written some years ago by Ben Scafferty, uh, who is a professor of uh, education economics at Kennesaw State in Georgia, and he wrote about the staffing surge. So here's just, I think, an update for us to remember. And during the pandemic, when we are thinking much more creatively about schools, and many of us appreciate our public school teachers uh, a lot more uh, than we did, let's say, seven months ago, and we know how hard they work and what they're doing, When we have conversations about teacher pay, the conversation cannot take place 
without talking about pay for principals, but pay for administrative staff. And if we're looking to where money's going, it's going there. I'm not saying it's not needed. I'm not saying it's not useful. I'm not saying it's unimportant. I'm just saying that it is a big growing field and it's something that we miss when we talk about revenue and expenses in education. So it's I enjoyed the so article. Important. It's- so important, you know, when I was doing teacher training um, with, I worked with high performing teachers and they would all inevitably be promoted out of the classroom into these various administrative positions. And I used to call it the sin of competence because I think in some sense mm. it's like, I don't want to be a teacher anymore. I kind of want to be a teacher. I want to have one foot in the classroom, one foot out. But what I really want is more money, which nobody can argue with, right? Sure. But, um, but yeah, it's, and what do we get? We get top heavy systems. And I love the question that you're pushing on about outcomes. So Great commentary this week. Well, coming up, I'm pretty excited to talk to Kate Walsh, head of the National Council. Council, I can't speak today, Gerard, most days. National Council (laughs) on Teacher Quality right after this. And Learning Curve listeners, this week we have with us somebody that I bet many of you know. Kate Walsh has served as the president of the National Council on Teacher Quality since 2003, leading work to ensure that every child has equal access to effective teachers. At NCTQ, Walsh has spearheaded efforts to instill greater transparency and higher standards among those institutions that exert influence and authority over teachers. Notably, she launched the first ever review and rankings of the nation's teacher preparation programs. Previously, Walsh worked at the Abel Foundation in Baltimore, the Baltimore City Public Schools, and the Core Knowledge Foundation. Among her accomplishments, she started and ran a boarding school located in Kenya, East Africa, in order to educate at-risk boys from Baltimore, founded one of the nation's premier STEM programs, yielding numerous Intel Talent Search winners for Baltimore City, and started the first alternative certification program for teachers in Maryland. A longtime resident of Baltimore, Walsh has also served on the Maryland State School Board. Today, though, she is coming to us from, what did we say, Kansas? Is that where you are today? Yeah, I believe is- so. I haven't I haven't seen a tree in, a, in about 200 miles, so I think it's Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess one thing the pandemic is teaching us is, boy, we can work from anywhere. So anywhere, we're really right. happy to have you. <laughs> we're happy to have you with us today, Kate. And as I was telling you before we started taping, um, I'm particularly excited having worked in both teacher training and higher education for a number um, of years. And, and I've used your work before in my own, that's for sure, especially reports written for Pioneer Institute. Um, I want to ask you really specifically about teacher quality and what we know about people who enter schools of education and what happens to them while they're there. So we know by and large that the test scores of students entering schools of ed are significantly lower than other schools or departments within universities. And so what happens is that a lot of prospective teachers um, I experienced this in my own work uh, as a professor, graduated without a firm grounding in the basic academic content that many of them would be teaching. Um, even those who we considered, you know, to be generalists, maybe elementary teachers, uh, didn't have sort of a firm grounding in a lot of the subject areas that they needed to have a command of. So I'm really curious to have you talk to us about why higher ed in the U.S., hasn't tightened academic expectations for education school undergraduates. Why, why don't we hold higher standards for folks who enter this important profession? Uh, The easy and kind of simple answer would be money. Um, 
you know, the it tends to be the case that higher ed doesn't exactly, they're not exactly putting the ed school or the, the school of education at the forefront of their priorities. Um, you know, there's a lot of people say, you know, it's just a moneymaker, a cash cow, and, and their real interest is in having the best uh, business school or the best, you know, science, uh, you know, physics firm or whatever. And so the ed school kind of gets um, relegated to the sidelines as long as it keeps bringing in a lot of tuition dollars. Um, I think there's certain truth to that, but I also think there's a general, uh, not very well talked about, but a general um, um, uh, problem in all of higher ed um, that may be accentuated in schools of ed, but I think all of higher ed could be, could be guilty of lowering academic expectations. I would um, I would agree with that as a former um, professor in an ed school. In fact, I I always used to remark to colleagues and others that um, when you would I worked across the street. The school of education was across the street from the building from the business school, which was like marble floors and wonderful decor. And sometimes mm-hmm. the the restrooms in the school of education didn't even have doors on them. <laughs> so it's but yes, it was a catch. Especially, you know, for those for those folks getting master's degrees. But when you when you talk about lowering expectations or lower expectations in higher ed, generally speaking, are you referring to grade inflation? Are you referring? Can you expand on that a little bit? I think you know my own observation, and I'm not an expert on higher ed, though. Though um, I've had to become somewhat of a of a of a student of higher ed in in when we when we engendered so much controversy and when we started rating their teacher prep programs and I had to figure out, you know, how they think and, and, and what's going on. But um, I, I, it is, you know, my strong impression is not just grade inflation. It's, so, you know, it's, it's courses that are trivial, but are designed to, to attract um, students um, but don't necessarily do much to broaden their mind or thinking and and um there's a lot of you know there's a lot of pretty easy majors and uh it's not hard to get a good grade and but nowhere is that more true than a school of education i mean we've done a study that um that uh, 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 somebody who is majoring in, in education to be a teacher is twice as likely <clears throat> twice as likely to graduate um, with honors than any other major on campus. Wow. Um, so um, the, the, you know, the, the expectations are very low. Wow. An A for effort. <laughs> I'm, so yes, exactly. You, <laughs> when it comes to um, private schools, especially what we think of, like I'm here on the East Coast, we have a lot of very expensive private schools, right? Um, and, and those schools really concentrate, not all of them, but a lot of them, on hiring folks with subject area expertise. And oftentimes they pay, they may pay less than district schools, but they're hiring folks with master's degrees, sometimes advanced degrees. Um, what is your your work, your research, your observations? What does that tell us about the importance of content area expertise, or or and or maybe not advanced degrees in teacher preparation? Well, sorry, first of all, we know 
absolutely conclusively that um, the advanced degrees that most teachers are pursuing have no impact on their effectiveness in the classroom. Um, and that's largely because the motivation to get those advanced degrees is to get a salary increase. And, and the salary increases are quite sizable to, once you have a major, uh, a master's. So, um, so, but the research has found over and over and over again that master's degrees are a waste of a school district's resources. Um, but very few, uh, there have been a few states that have backed away from them, but, um, and a few districts, but not, not as much as you think, given that they do little to improve student learning. Um, in terms of content knowledge, you know, I think it's a little bit simplistic to say, well, private schools, um, they just want to have, uh, uh, teachers with good liberal arts education, and they do fine. Um, the truth of the matter is it's somewhere in between. I mean, I've met, I personally have hired um, teachers from a very fancy private school in Baltimore to come work in the Baltimore City schools for a really pretty tough job, and they struggled a lot. I mean, it's one thing to teach 15 kids who are all well-fed, who've all been read to by their parents. And, you know, it's just a yep. very yep. different dynamic. You're not going to have as many issues. So, yeah, no, I will um, take. And, and, you know, over the years, I've come to really, um, I, I was absolutely of that mindset 20 years ago. But if you start reading about, of all that we've learned about what could make a teacher more effective, like how to teach children to read and, um, you know, how to manage classroom behavior using research-based strategies and understanding how children learn um, from what we've learned in cognitive psychology. I mean, there's a, there's a lot more content than there was when I first got into this 30 years ago. And, um, you know, I think it would benefit the private school teachers as well. But um, all that said, I absolutely agree with you that the attention to liberal arts content knowledge is a real value that private schools uphold and they put forward. And I wish um, was more um, was something that teacher prep valued as well. Yeah. And a lot of teachers who go in the classroom might wish that they had a little bit more of that under their belt. I, it's because we are coming up on an election here. I, I can't, I can't go without, I can't let Gerard go yet without asking you a question about what you might expect um, if we have a Biden administration, and of course, Vice President Biden was, um, you know, part of the Obama administration, which advanced the race to the top initiative, which included teacher evaluations and, of course, standards and, and tests, um, especially in this moment, we don't know exactly what's going to be happening to assessment. But um, our, the race to the top reforms met very significant resistance from across the political spectrum. Um, we're seeing NAEP scores certainly not getting better um, in, in most places. In some places they're doing better, but they're usually the bottom coming up. If we do have a Biden presidency, 
how would you anticipate his secretary of education proceeding with K to 12 policymaking with specific regard to teachers and teacher policy? Well, first of all, I don't think it matters all that much what the federal government does regarding education. There are only nine or maybe 10% of the money that they only contribute about 10% of the money that goes into public ed. Everything that happens, um, is largely due to what states or districts want to do. But that said, I would also put forward that um, that some of the initiatives that happened under Obama were very right-headed, but um, um, maybe pursued a little too aggressively. I don't think a lot of I think a lot of the states. I think most of the states that won race to the top money. Um, squandered it and they didn't follow through on what they said they were going to do, but some did. Um, I think, you know, the teacher evaluation work was so good, so right, so important, and yet um, um, schools, uh, states abandoned it it, as soon as it seemed a little difficult. So um, uh, maybe that wasn't how we're going to see teacher evaluation um, get um, happen. But in terms of Biden, um, you know, I think they're just going to try to right the ship. We've had four years of a, a pretty un, unusual um, Department of Education and, and one that I personally don't, um, you know, I, I can't say that I think has been particularly effective. But, um, but, I think that there will be a return to the center um, with a very sharp and, and renewed focus on the importance of public education over over issues like choice. Um, I don't think there will be a lot. I don't think there will be a lot going on because I think that people are going to be consumed by such issues as climate change and um, the pandemic, of course, which will be with us for a while. And other things. I don't expect a very activist um, um, uh, administration on education. Hi, Kate. It's Gerard. Good to hear your voice. You too. So one of the things I always find interesting about conversations like this is the international comparison. And you've heard before that a lot of countries in Eastern Europe uh, or Western Europe and Asia um, their, their systems do well, and they tend to be nationalized, while Canada has a decentralized education sister, uh, system somewhat closer to our own. So as, mm-hmm. as this relates to higher performance in the U.S., are, the teacher, are there teacher preparation lessons from Canada provinces or other countries that we in the U.S. could look at to possibly emulate? I mean, for starters, um, we have way too many teacher preparation programs. There are 1,450-some institutions in the United States which prepare elementary and secondary teachers. And that's so far, uh, that's so many more than any other country I can, I've been able to identify. For example, Canada has 50. Now, Canada is a tenth the size of the U.S., so, but if you, um, you know, control for population, that would mean Canada would get up to 500, roughly, and 
that's still uh, a third of the number that, um, if you can follow my math, <laughs> it's still a third of what um, the U.S. has. So it's, it's chaos. Um, we do not have uh, teacher prep is, is, uh, is not governed. There is no uh, functioning accrediting body at the moment. I mean, half of all programs choose not to be accredited or don't think it's worth their time to be accredited. That doesn't happen in any other field. You don't operate if you don't have professional accreditation but half of all teacher prep programs operate without professional accreditation because uh, not because they haven't earned it, but because they haven't sought it for the most part. So that's, that's a fundamental problem. Um, you know, Ontario is always the one everybody writes about within, the, within Canada as being, um, um, being really having its act together, so to speak. Um, you know, they'll do things like they'll, the ministry, uh, education ministry in Ontario will control the number of teacher education slots in the country so that they are much more tentative, attentive to supply and demand. But here in the U.S., most states can't even tell you what their supply and demand figures are. They don't collect the data. So it's not even a matter of controlling how many elementary slots we have is that we don't even know how many elementary slots there are, and we don't know how many elementary teachers our schools are going to need to hire. So, you know, in the United States, we have produced two and a half times more elementary teachers than are needed year in and year out for as long as I've been in this business. I mean, it, it, you know, all these um, young 18-year-olds come in and they say, well, I want to teach first grade, and nobody tells them you know, your job, there, there are no job openings for that. Um, but the truth is, half of all kids who come out of a teacher prep program don't teach, not necessarily because they can't find a job, it's just because they weren't really all that interested in teaching anyway. So you can imagine um, the quality of a program is diminished substantially if half the people in a class aren't interested in being teachers. You know, I can't, I, I think that would be very frustrating as a professor. So, I mean, I, I think that um, there's uh, some real fundamental um, dysfunction with, within our system. Um, we pretty much are, you know, the secondary, it's important to distinguish between secondary and elementary. Secondary teachers are, you know, that's a pretty selected process, but elementary, um, we're routinely pulling from the bottom half of college goers. Um, not, we used to pull from the top half, and now we're pulling from the bottom half of most places. Um, in, in Ontario, they only take one in five candidates to apply. So you can just see the difference. Um, but when you talk to programs, they'll say, oh, we can't get anyone else to apply. Well, I just think that's a lack of imagination. I think they're that one of the reasons a lot of people don't want to apply to school of education is because it's a low status major. It's seen as an it's, it's a seen as a major that people pursue because um, the, it's an easy path to graduation, and that's you know that's tragic for teacher quality. 
many who are listening to you now are probably unfamiliar with this statue uh, presented to us, which is why we have you on, because people think it's you go in, you get a job, you move forward. And you're saying it's much more nuanced than that, which leads to my second question, because there's a role that uh, special interests and national trade groups play in teacher accreditation uh, writ large, whether it's the National Governors Association, uh, Council for State Chief School Officers, or our teacher unions. So let's take, for example, the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, the goal was to return authority to states. However, over the past five years, we've seen little initiative to push reform coming from governors or state chiefs. Could you discuss the role DC education trade organizations play uh, in the K-12 system, whether it is teacher prep in particular or K-12 education in general? Uh, well, first of all, I like that you lump the unions in with those other groups. I don't usually get the question asked that way. I usually get asked to dump on the unions <laughs> all by themselves. Exactly. Um, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I think Generally speaking, those groups have not either been um, have not been the instigators for reform under in any period. Right? Um, you could say that well, the National Governors Association was uh, was one of the um, key groups to push for um, the Common Core state standards because that went so badly. I doubt they'll get into that business again. But um, but um, for the most part, trade associations have been, um, their job is to defend and protect their members as the same as teachers unions. Um, so they're not necessarily agents for change. It's not their, their role. I would say um, that that is where the federal government um, can play a role. I mean, I, I think we saw a lot of that with some of the initiatives that um, Secretary Duncan uh, during the Obama administration pull, pushed through, not necessarily as, as successfully as, as he or anyone else might have liked, but I do thought, we, you know, I, it was good to see that bully pulpit being used to advocate for things like teacher evaluation. Um, the, the truth of the matter is you need, the states need the federal government to require them to do things because they need the political cover in the same way that districts need states to require them to do things because they need the political cover. That seems to be the only way um, we get reform is when people can say, well, I, we have to do this. Um, and I would also say right now, we're not seeing a huge wave of change agents within the more recent appointments of state chiefs. There was a big wave of them, um, you know, as you know, 10 years ago, but less so now. So I have actually one more question for you based upon a few things that I've heard. Uh, right now, there's a major focus on race in education, in schools, in the economy, across the board. And we know that right now, approximately 7% of the teachers uh, are African-American. There's a big push to uh, create the talent pipeline. We know that a number of African-Americans uh, who have graduate degrees will do so in education. And we know that at a part of our history for black women in particular, uh, education and nursing were two of the jobs. With the work that you've seen across the board and maybe some things you're doing now, 
what can we do to diversify the pipeline in a way that makes sense for everyone? Well, uh, by our study of this problem, the two biggest contributors to the lack of diversity uh, in the teaching profession, apart from just sheer demographics, because there are more black and brown children than there are black and brown adults. So just the demographics work against us. But, you know, there's 50% of kids in schools right now are black and brown and only 20% of adults. So it's, that, that in itself is a huge challenge for us. But apart from that, um, the profession is not attracting black and brown Canada uh, teachers. Um, they do not enter, they do not major in education at the same rate as white kids. If they did, uh, we could increase, um, we could increase the number of candidates of color, teachers of color, uh, by 80,000. Um, no, not all of them would make it through, but that's how many right now is if, if they were entering at the same rate as white kids into teaching, they, we would add 80,000. Um, candidates of color to um, role. So that that would be significant. And then the other thing is they're not um, often um, be, be because of um, our, the systemic racism, which has um, um, pervaded our education system. Um, they've arrived at college um, less prepared on average as their white counterparts. And so they struggle to pass licensing tests. Now there's a lot, a lot of talk right now about these tests not, not they don't shouldn't matter. Um, that um, they're biased. That um, you'll hear people all the time saying, "Well, I know such and such a teacher. She was great, but she couldn't pass her licensing test. You know, she made it in on a waiver or something." And you know, those things don't correlate with teacher effectiveness. And, and, you know, I'm not here to defend our current regime of tests. I'm sure there are problems, um, but they go through incredible amount of bias testing. And I do think it's unconscionable to put a teacher in a classroom who doesn't know, uh, who can't pass a test in the knowledge and skills they need. So what's the answer? Well, we look back at teacher preparation. Do they, do they, get these kids, these young teacher candidates, especially kids who have come from substandard K-12 education, do they give them the courses, not just the test cram booklets and the remediation classes, but the actual courses in the material they need to pass these tests? And they don't. You know, it's remarkable how little attention is given to making sure these kids get a good liberal arts education that is relevant to the job of elementary teacher. So by that, I mean, you know, they'll give them a long list of electives in, in, in history and they say, you pick one and the kids will see something kind of fun like, you know, sexual revolution in the 1960s and so they say, well, I want to take that, not the American Revolution, you know. So, um, and nobody says to them, you know, if you don't take that class, you might not be a teacher. You know, that's not happening. So uh, this all goes back to teacher prep doing a much better job getting these kids fully prepared. 
And that sounds like a topic on which we could have just a whole other show. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it is. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Kate Walsh, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us today. I do hope we can have you back um, for to to explore more of these questions, and we'll see um, we'll see where we are a couple months from now. And on the subject of assessments, we'll hope maybe that they all aren't all gone away. <laughs> it's something something we've been yeah. talking about on the learning curve a lot lately. But thanks again for your time and um, safe and happy travels. Stay healthy. Thank you. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye bye. Of course, we can't leave you without the tweet of the week. And this one I'm pretty excited about because I hope we can get our author. We actually, we have the author at our disposal, friends. The title of this tweet is COVID-19. Do tweets have titles? This tweet says, COVID-19 pandemic gives us opportunity to refocus education in America. And this, friends, is from the great Gerard Robinson, who has a piece out in USA Today about refocusing opportunity, refocusing education and opportunity in America. So Gerard, tell us about this. What, what prompted you to write this and what do you want our listeners to know? On September 30th, I had a conversation with three educators. Danielle Allen is a professor at Harvard University. Eric Hanushek is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. And Sarah Brown Wesling is an English teacher in Ohio, but also winner of the National Teacher of the Year Award. And we came together to have a conversation about a topic, and here it is, education and the good. And we use data from our National Moral Formation Report, uh, which will soon be published by the Institute for Advanced Studies here at the University of Virginia, where I work. And we use that to really have a conversation about the importance of learning and what should we learn and what should we know as relates to preparing young people for their place in uh, civil society. So if you read the USA Today uh, article, there is a link in the last paragraph, which will take you to the to YouTube, and you can actually listen to the hour and 15-minute conversation. And I think it's worth it. And more importantly, I think the information that we have in our report is really going to drive a good conversation. So thank you so much, uh, Kara, for giving me a shout-out. Yeah, and I'm sure we can find that on Pioneer Institute's website as well after this show is released. Well, okay, Gerard, next week um, we're coming up on Halloween. Not uh, Halloween unlike any other, but we've got um, we've got a great guest next week, Professor Andrew um, Burstein, and he's going to talk to us about the life of Washington Irving. Um, so happy to have that conversation. Gerard, until then, take care, be well, and can't wait to talk to you next week. Same here.